Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at www.schwepp.net. Episode 30, Introducing Plato's Republic. I went down yesterday to the Piraeus with Glaucon, son of Ariston, both to pray to the goddess and wishing to see how they performed the festivities, which they were then carrying out for the first time. This is the opening sentence of Plato's dialogue, The Republic. The speaker is Socrates, as we soon find out. The Piraeus is the port of the city of Athens, and was in Plato's time separate from the city, though today it's been absorbed by the Athenian sprawl. Glaucon, the son of Ariston, is Plato's real-life brother, and the new festival mentioned is that of the Thracian goddess Bendis, who's newly been imported to Attica. This all seems pretty straightforward, surely. Nothing too heavy is going on here, not like the Timaeus, with its numerical opening and invitation to look for some missing element in the dialogue, as we discussed in episode 27. And yet, Plato seems never to do anything by accident, and we have a lot of evidence that this is especially true in the Republic, as this episode will begin to elucidate. Indeed, regarding these first words of the dialogue, It's reported in antiquity that after Plato's death, a wax tablet was found among his effects, which had on it several different versions of the opening words of the Republic, as if he were painstakingly rewriting, looking for the perfect opening lines. Why? What's so special about going down to the Piraeus and visiting this festival of Bendis? We shall leave that question unanswered, because of all possible introductions to Plato's masterwork, an unanswered question is perhaps the most appropriate. We mentioned in the previous episode that the Republic has been at the center of a great whirl of esoteric interpretation, from antiquity right down to the present. And yet, in most academic treatments of the dialogue, you'll find little to suggest that we don't have pretty much all the answers. Platonic scholars tend toward a case-closed approach to this dialogue, brushing aside the peculiar unanswered questions in Plato's text. This can take egregious forms. As we shall see, one reputable scholarly translation of the dialogue simply omits sections which it deems obscure. In this episode, we propose to give a basic introduction to the dialogue, pointing out some of those standing puzzles along the way, and to have a look at the dialogue's structure. And a warning is in order. There will be some discussion of metaphysics in this episode, but not very much. We want to keep it to the bare minimum, but some aspects of the Republic's overall thrust are just inaccessible without a bit of discussion of the world of forms, the tripartite soul, different modes of cognition, and so on. Then in the next episode, which is part two of this episode, we shall discuss some key passages which have central importance for the history of Western esotericism, the vivid myths and images clustered near the end of the Republic, which have inspired thinkers from the late Platonists to, indirectly, medieval Christian philosophers and astrologers, and then, of course, directly, the Renaissance Platonists, the alchemists, and, of course, modern esoteric readers of Plato, We're speaking here of the allegory of the cave, the myth of Ur, of course, but also some of the less known passages like the divided line, a splendid piece of geometric esotericism, and the mysterious nuptial number, which is one of the most amazing pieces of arithmetical esotericism to survive from antiquity, and one which has racked the brains of many a thinker from Cicero down to the moderns. But in this episode, our main task is just to get a very basic map of the complexities of the dialogue sorted out in our heads, 
without which we won't really have a just picture of the crucial set pieces of the sun, the cave, the divided line, and the nuptial number. The Republic, known in Greek as politeia, and so perhaps better translated polity than Republic, is traditionally divided into ten books. These divisions have nothing to do with Plato, and little to do with the organic structure of the text itself. They were probably the result of the industrious scholars of the Museum in Alexandria, the same folks who also did the textual collation work on Homer's poems and other classics of Western literature. These guys were sort of the original editors of Greek literature. For purposes of navigation, we will be referring to the ten books of the dialogue from time to time, but the key coordinates, for those of you following along at home, are the Stephanos numbers. Stephanos numbers are explained in the notes to episode 24 of the podcast for those who are unfamiliar with them. So check that out if you aren't sure what we mean when we make statements like at Republic Book 5 462b4, which is an example of the standard way of sending someone to a specific passage in Plato. Now, let's consider the Republic's narrative structure as a whole if we can. We have a frame narrative, or rather two frame narratives, or even three depending on how layered we want our reading to be. So Socrates narrates that he and Glaucon went to the festival of Bendis the previous day, and when they were about to head back to Athens, they were waylaid by a group of Pyrian friends who lightheartedly forced them to accompany them to the house of one Cephalus for conversation. This trip to the Piraeus and to Cephalus's house is a frame for the ensuing dialogue, which then dispenses with any stage directions and just gives us speech. But we should note that the whole event is being retold by Socrates. So the frame narrative of the trip to the Piraeus is actually within another frame narrative, that of Socrates retelling the events of the dialogue the next day to some unnamed listener, which could be us, the reader, or it could be some imaginal other person, perhaps Plato himself. We could put a single set of quotation marks around the whole text of the Republic, one mark at the beginning and one mark at the end of the dialogue, since the whole thing is being retold by Socrates. And Socrates is recounting in absurdly improbable detail the conversations which resulted from his and Glaucon's trip to the Piraeus and the following discussions there at the House of Cephalus. You sometimes get this kind of Arabian Nights-esque story-within-a-story-within-a-story effect with Plato, and this is one of those times. Incidentally, all this framing of the narrative tends to be completely ignored by analytic Plato scholars, which should maybe inspire us to prick up our ears and take notice, especially since the dialogue specifically speaks, as we shall see, of different levels of mimesis, that's representation, and of representation of representation, and so on. And the dialogue itself is presented as, in Plato's own terms, at least two levels of mimesis removed from the notional truth. I think we can perhaps take the notional truth to be the original dialogue, which is meant to have taken place at Cephalus's house. So they went to Cephalus's house, had the dialogue, which is the main meat of the Republic, but then that is framed within a trip to the Piraeus and some initial banter and so on. But then that whole block is framed within Socrates' retelling of it the next day. And the fact that the dialogue presumably never did take place but Plato made it up, just makes things even more interesting from our standpoint as readers, because it adds another layer of mimesis to the whole. Confused? Good. That's a note on narrative framing. Now, we are at the house of Cephalus. There's some banter, and then the rather large group there present decides to try to figure out what true justice 
might mean, dikaiosune. So this bantering when they arrive at Cephalus's place is the frame narrative for the main part of the dialogue, the meat of the dialogue, where Socrates will take over the proceedings with the help of Glaucon, and most of the Republic consists of Socrates developing his ideas at length with occasional comments like, yes, I see, and but of course Socrates, from Glaucon. But at the very beginning in Book 1, we get a number of other voices giving us their definitions of justice, which Socrates will do his usual demolition job on in the main course of the dialogue, although he does a heck of a lot more than that in the course of the discussion. Now I'd like to present a very brief outline of the dialogue as a whole here. From my own experience of trying to come to grips with this complex work, a basic framework upon which to hang our ideas is really helpful. I shall leave a lot out, and the things I pick out as important are obviously my own subjective choices, but even that is better than nothing when approaching the Republic, it seems to me. So anyone who has read the Republic and is uh, deeply familiar with it may find this episode and even the next episode not particularly interesting. But the usefulness of this narrative approach is especially true as in the following episodes we shall be addressing the question of esoteric numerical and harmonic symbolism embedded in the actual structure of the dialogue itself. And it would help if we knew something about the structure in its exoteric aspects first, it seems to me. So here's a beginner's guide to what's in Plato's Republic. In book one, we have the frame story we've mentioned, followed by some charming banter between Socrates and his host Cephalus. We then get three definitions of justice. Cephalus defines it as basically honesty and fair dealing. We then have someone called Polemarchus defining it as helping one's friends and harming one's enemies. And finally, we have the notorious Thrasymachus, who is a sophist. Um, this is the kind of rhetorician which comes under fire in several Platonic dialogues. And Thrasymachus defines justice basically in the terms, the strong do what they can, and the weak suffer what they must. This brings us to 354c in the dialogue. But Socrates goes on the attack here and questions the aggressive Thrasymachus on numerous points, putting forth the belief that it is always better to be just than unjust, and this provides the launching point for the remainder of the dialogue. Near the beginning of Book 2, Socrates comes out with the problem in its full aspect. What would be the ideal state or form of social organization which fully expressed justice? This is the beginning of the step-by-step -step construction of Plato's Utopia, presented as an inquiry from first principles. We should note here in passing that for Plato, as for all Greek political thinkers of the classical period, the basic normative type of society is the polis, the city-state. Hence our term politics, and so on and so forth. And so the whole discussion of the ideal state is actually of an ideal city, something we also saw in our discussion of Plato's Atlantis myth, where both ancient Athens and Atlantis are cities. Socrates begins with some general comments on societies, and on the dangers of luxury in human societies, notably that luxury leads to war. He then brings in the idea of the guardians. In the simple, non-luxurious state, which he's so far defined, there isn't going to be any internal conflict, because there won't be any cause for internal conflict. Everyone will have what they need, no one will have anything that fancy that would be worth stealing the usual story. But there still will be a need for self-defense from outside threats, and this will fall to the guardian class. These guardians are a higher social class than the mass of men, who basically drop out of Plato's picture from here on in. Plato doesn't expect much from normal folks, really. And his utopianism doesn't extend to reforming them and making them better or making them philosophic. Let them get on with economic production and so forth, and that's them sorted. As for the guardians, they are characterized by something usually translated as 
spirit, thumos. They are spirited, they are passionate, but their passions are channeled towards good pursuits, such as bravery in battle and passion for excellence. There follows a long passage on the rigorous educational program which the guardians must undergo to become guardians, from 376e to 412b, largely consisting in something called musike, and in physical training. The whole of this training, it turns out, is for the soul rather than the body, and balances its different parts. So even in the physical gymnastics training is aimed at making the soul harmonious. Musike. We have a lot more to be said about this term later on, but we can note here that this is often translated as music, but it is not a limited phenomenon of ordered sound, such as we think of when we hear the term music. We're talking here about a whole cultivation of the human soul in accord with the muses, who are the goddesses after which Musike is named, and who play a major role in the Republic, incidentally. Musike harmonizes the soul in some crucial way, and the harmonies we hear in concrete music are representations of this truer harmony. So, the Guardians have musical training, musical in quotes, because it's, we're talking about something much bigger than just learning to play the kithara or whatever, and they have physical training. Now, from Book 3, 412b, to Book 4, 421c, Socrates introduces a new stratum of society. He's building his picture up as he goes along. These are the philosopher rulers. Up until now, the guardian class was homogeneous. But from here on in, we hear of a further highest subdivision, the true rulers, the archontes, and the military guardians are now called epikuroi, which is usually translated as auxiliaries, the helpers, the, the sort of right-hand men of the rulers. So the guardian class as a whole will receive the rigorous training up to the age of 20, living in conditions of literally Spartan simplicity. As we mentioned in the previous episode, many of the institutions of the guardian's way of life were borrowed from the Sparta of Plato's day, which had so decisively trounced Athens in the Peloponnesian War. So this will be a meritocracy, based entirely on ability. But the people in general will be made to believe that the different classes of society are actually differentiated by literal differences in their breeding. They will be fed a version of the myth of the different races from Hesiod's works and days, in which we have a golden race, a silver race, a bronze race, and an iron race. And the people in this utopia will be caused to believe for their own good that the different classes are literally different types of people. In actual fact, society will be set up in such a way that in the course of education, there is a system of examinations. So for example, someone born to the lower classes who showed aptitude for philosophy would be extracted and put into the philosophical caste. And likewise, should in the unlikely event of some philosophers giving birth to a unphilosophic child who had no hope of becoming philosophical, that child would be shunted down to the bronze class of regular folks. But people would believe that, in fact, what separated or what gave an essence to each of the classes was some kind of inner uh, metallic admixture that made them into gold, silver, or bronze people. Now, this is the famous or infamous noble lie of the Republic. And we should note here that some read this passage as highly ironic. So it isn't necessarily meant to be taken as a genuine recommendation. For my part, I find it hard to figure out what to make of it. Anyway, moving on from that to the creation of the ruler class. 
This class society is supported by a kind of propaganda machine, which makes everyone except the rulers think that they are literally made by nature to serve the role they play in society. People are born to be guardians, born to be commoners, etc. But we still haven't heard much about the philosopher rulers. Now, from 434D to 445B, Plato discusses the virtues proper to the state, and then introduces the tripartite soul, which mirrors the tripartite structure of the state just outlined. Now this is important, and we'll have more to say about it next episode. Plato has noticed, or Plato Socrates has noticed, that human beings sometimes seem to have more than one drive within them, and sometimes they conflict. We might, for example, be hungry for some food which we know is bad for us. So if I'm one person, how does my single soul both want and not want the bag of chips or the beer or whatever? This, it turns out, is because the soul has three parts. These are usually translated as the appetitive part. This is the lowest level which takes care of hunger, thirst, sex drive, and so on. The spirited part, which we've already mentioned, which is sort of like a higher form of appetite. Appetite for achievement, for victory, for success. Um, and this is the drive which characterizes the auxiliary class. And highest of all, the rational part, which is the part of the soul to be valued most highly, the master part of the soul, which has the potential actually to discover truth, as we shall see. It should be clear now how the microcosm of the soul Plato is constructing here is mirrored both in the macrocosm of the three-part class system of the ideal state and obviously exists in the individuals. So the state, in fact, can be mapped onto individual people. Finally, he discusses the virtues proper to the individual. So we've had the virtues of the state, followed by the three-part soul, and then another discussion of virtues of the individual. So there's a nice parallelism here highlighting the macrocosm-microcosm structure he set up. This seems to me to bring the first major part of the Republic to a close. And there follows a few short sections from 445b to 471c, discussing the equality of women in the ideal state, the complete dissolution of the family in the ideal state, and how warfare would be carried out in this utopia. Plato here sets the tone for much of the utopian literature which follows him. Women, contrary to accepted Greek norms, should be on an equal footing to men, seeing as this is a meritocracy and women are perfectly capable of doing the things men can do. The family is to be eliminated, as it presents competition for the affections of the citizens. The state and the state alone should be the object of their devotion. And both of these ideas will have a long life in utopian literature of various stripes later on. As for warfare, the ideal city will basically be an undefeatable fighting machine, but it will only fight justly in self-defense, but never gets aggressive, since its soldiers can own no property, so cannot really become acquisitive or jealous of other people's stuff, which they completely scorn. Then, something very curious happens in the dialogue. From Book 5, 471c to 541b, all the way to the end of Book 7, we have a kind of return to the same subject matter as we've already been discussing, but this time going over the same territory in a much more metaphysically charged way. This is, as it turns out, the exact midpoint of the dialogue in terms of length. 472 basically, is where you find the midpoint. We might call it the octave of the dialogue, hinting at the musical ratios we will be exploring in coming episodes. At this point, Glaucon challenges Socrates to stop with all this discussion of this imaginary state they've been designing together, and to show how it could exist in practice. Socrates points out 
that ideals, such as the perfect justice, which was the beginning of the conversation, cannot exist in a pure form in the everyday world. So the perfect state cannot in fact exist. But, Socrates asks, is it any worse for this? Is it not perfectly valuable as an ideal? As often in Plato, the ideal is valued more highly than the phenomenal. But, Socrates says, we can outline the conditions which might be likely to give rise to something closely resembling the pattern we've laid out so far. So we need a different pattern. And what follows in the dialogue for the next major section is the outlining of this different pattern. Socrates sets out the paradoxical teaching that only philosophers should rule. The philosopher is defined in terms of the metaphysics of the world of forms. Those who know the forms are philosophers, since only they have a priori true knowledge. And if you've been listening to the podcast so far, you should have at least a basic grasp on what Plato might mean when he's talking about forms. At 502c to 509c, Socrates proposes that the highest object of this true knowledge, this knowledge of the forms, is the good itself, which at 509b6 and following is described as being epekena tes usias, beyond being or beyond essence. A metaphysical statement which will go on to have an incalculably huge influence on the development of Western esotericism, particularly on the development of apophatic mystical writing and other currents of, shall we say, negative theology, for lack of a better term. And we'll see this unfolding in the course of the podcast. We shall discuss this passage more in the following episode in the context of Plato's sun image. Just as the sun makes everything visible, but you can't actually look directly at the sun itself. So the form of the good, the supreme form, makes all the other forms visible or apprehensible, while itself remaining transcendent and, as it were, invisible. Cue the development of a whole complex of ideas about the deus absconditus in Western thought. More on that next week. Socrates then lays out a rather esoteric schema of epistemology, Epistemology, for those of you who are not um, philosophy geeks like me, is the study of knowing. How do we know? How does human cognition work? This scheme of epistemology we shall return to when we discuss the famous divided line passage. We then get the allegory of the cave, to which we shall also return next week. And from 521c to 531c, we then have another section on education, following the same sort of pattern we've seen before, but this time the curriculum is a higher curriculum appropriate not to the general auxiliaries, but to the philosophers who aim to deal with truth in itself. Socrates discusses arithmetic, followed by geometry, solid geometry, astronomy, harmonics, and finally, dialectic, the highest art, the art of philosophical conversation, the Socratic method par excellence and a means of arriving at the truth. And so ends Book 7, and what I think of as the second main section of the Republic, setting aside the introductory material of Book 1. So what next? Things get weird again. I would liken the experience of reading what I'm calling the first main part of the Republic to that of climbing a mountain. We have the introduction, and then Socrates, starting with basic ideas about justice and society, builds up piece by piece an imaginary just state with two social classes, introducing almost sneakily a third ruling class on the way. At the end of this section, you get the impression you've arrived at the top of a mountain, but from the new beginning of 472, 
you realize that the actual peak was hidden behind a ridge the whole time, and then you start climbing again in earnest. This time, you're working from principles outlined in the first section, but mainly concerned now with the ruling class of true philosophers, the kind of higher realms of consciousness that they have available to them, and the kinds of education they receive in the ideal state to fit them to encountering these higher realms of consciousness. The crucial passages of the sun and the good, the divided line and the cave, all bring out in different ways with sublimity and sometimes with esotericism, these higher reaches of human existence. And we shall talk about them in some detail in the next episode. But for now, let's continue with the Republic as a whole and see if we can't come to some idea of its whole structure. We have our sublime passages, replete with imagery, depicting the glorious realm of truth, which becomes attainable to the true philosopher. And then, with Book 8, it's like we're strolling along on the mountain's peak and suddenly fall off a cliff. Books 8 and 9 of the Republic discuss the ways in which the just society might decay. We might think that such a society would last forever in its utopian grandeur, but no, it will fall off and degenerate, as do all things in the world we live in. We hear of the fall of the ideal state, which is aristocracy in the truest sense of the term, that is, rule by the best people. And this aristocracy will give way to timocracy, then oligarchy, then democracy, which we find quite low in the scale of um, ideal governmental systems, and lastly, despotism, the worst form of society. So it's not actually so much falling off a cliff as rolling down the mountainside with worse and worse bumps along the way till you end up crashing at the bottom into tyrannical horror. Now let's back up for a moment. From the beginning of the dialogue, we followed a narrative trajectory slowly up to a first peak. Then, from the new beginning, at the center of the dialogue, we've gone higher still. And Socrates has now taken us back down, rather precipitously, to the lowest level of human existence, that of the tyrant. The type of man, let us remember, which Thrasymachus praised as the exemplification of virtue in Book 1, the strong man who takes what he wants. At 576b to 588a, we have a return to the question of the just and unjust lives in comparison in respect of happiness, a subject discussed way back when Socrates was refuting Thrasymachus at the beginning of the dialogue. We then get a reaffirmation that justice is profitable and injustice never so. And that's sort of the end of the dialogue in a certain sense, as I read it. But there is, of course, still book 10 yet to come. But let's pause here a moment, because the cliff edge I have talked about might not be a cliff edge at all, but rather a return along a chiastic path. What does chiastic mean, you might be asking? Well, chiasmus is the ancient Greek rhetorical term for a kind of organization of a text in a pattern like ABBA. In fact, the name of the Swedish supergroup ABBA to whom we've already had occasion to refer in this podcast, is a perfect example of chiasmus. Chiasmus can exist on the very small scale, a single line of verse, for example, or on the grand scale. A good example of a small-scale chiasmus, small but not as small as the name of Abba, comes in line 11 of Virgil's poem The Aeneid, Tantaine animis caelestibus irae. Is there such anger in the minds of the celestial ones? How is this a chiasmus? Well, Tantai and Irai go together, such anger. So that's the 
first and the last words, and animis caelestibus go together, in the celestial minds. Those are the central words. So we have an ABBA pattern. Another way of looking at it is a development towards a middle point, followed by the same root moved through in a reverse order to the end point. So if ABBA's music lived up to their chiastic name, the chorus of Dancing Queen would go like, You are the Dancing Queen, young and sweet, only 17. Sweet and young, the Queen of Dancing is what you are. Sadly, ABBA only hold out the promise of true chiasmus. But chiasmus need not exist merely on the small scale. And this is the point we need to make here. On the large scale, it's a major organizing principle of many ancient works of literature, including, for example, Homer's Iliad, a work which, in typically platonic fashion, will be banned from the perfect state that Socrates is outlining, since it contains so many apparent absurd passages and makes the gods do things that we don't really think are appropriate to the gods if we are Platonists, as we discussed in episode 26, but which is also quoted by Socrates throughout the dialogue The Republic. The first book of the Iliad opens with an old man, Chryses, begging the Greeks to return his captive daughter, and he's rejected, which sets in motion the chain of events which drives the Iliad as a whole. Then, in the final book, 24, another old man, this time King Priam of Troy, begs for the return of the body of his dead son, Hector. This time his entreaties are accepted, ending the chain of events started in book one, but in reverse. We even have the same line repeated in both contexts. Quote, so he spoke, and the old man was frightened and obeyed. In the first context, it's Agamemnon telling Chryseis off, and in the, the later context, it's Achilles telling Priam off. This is an example of large-scale chiasmus. And this kind of construction can be found in a big way in Plato's Republic, it turns out. Let's take the example we alluded to a minute ago. If we go back to book one, our introductory episode in the House of Cephalus, we had Thrasymachus giving his definition of justice as basically might makes right. Firstly, he defines justice as the interest of the strong, and then argues that injustice is more profitable than justice, since we see every day how the powerful get what they want and the weak are shafted systematically. So we have the statements that justice is the rule of the strong and injustice is more profitable than justice, as it were. He's not actually saying that. He's saying justice is the rule of the strong and justice is more profitable than injustice. But of course, he's reversed the meanings of justice and injustice from what Socrates wants them to be. Followed by the long building up of the ideal state, then another even loftier building up of the pinnacle of the ideal state, the philosopher rulers, along with the highest types of cognition and the education of the highest types of human beings, the philosophic rulers again, followed by what I've described as the cliff edge, when we descend again, actually it's clearly blatantly not a cliff edge after all, but rather a chiastic climb down, a symmetrical descent after the ascent, the first part, we go in book eight and nine from the highest level of society down through each level of decline possible and finish with a return to the original conversation with Thrasymachus, now reversed. Socrates now tells us that justice is not simply the rule of the strong and Justice is more profitable than injustice, a reversal of what Thrasymachus had said. There will be a lot more on chiastic construction in the Republic in two episodes' time, 
and fair warning, minds may be blown by this episode. But for now, let us proceed to the dialogue's true end, book 10, which may serve as the chiastic bookend to the frame story in book one, or at least that's my reading of it. If you think back to the previous episode, you'll recall that we discussed utopia. We also discussed the inner world and the other world, three types of imaginal terrain which esoteric writers have often traversed in their works. In The Republic, thus far, we have seen utopia on a grand scale. Indeed, we've seen the definitive utopia, the mother of all utopias to come. And we've also glanced at, in the discussions of the sun, the cave, and the divided line, descriptions of a wholly new kind of inner world, which it seems Plato very much pioneered. And we'll talk more about that in the following episode as we discuss these powerful images illustrating Plato's epistemological theory. But now in Book 10, it's time for Plato's other world. Socrates, having gone down again from the narrative heights, has brought many of the threads of the dialogue together. But he's not content. He offers a myth to illustrate the final fate of the soul. This is Plato's famous myth of Ur, and it's a doozy. And since you, gentle listener, have patiently sat through a rather long and detailed account of the basic structure of Plato's complex dialogue, the least I can do is reward you the same way Plato rewards his patient readers and listeners, with a delicious myth. Book 10 of The Republic begins with the infamous long discussion of the problems with poetry, the idea that representational art of all kinds is merely mimesis of true realities. And since the realities that it's mimicking, you know, things, people, like a painting of a person or a carving of a table or whatever, since these realities aren't as real as the forms of which they are mere representations, the whole enterprise of artistic representation is really problematic. This passage was discussed in some length in episode 26 of the podcast, so please check that out if you haven't already. And we then move on to proofs of the soul's immortality, and the rewards which justice, the subject of the dialogue, brings to the immortal soul. First, Socrates discusses the rewards in this life, the present life, the embodied life, and then he narrates the myth of Ur, which tells us about what happens after we die. This myth is one of Plato's most fascinating, and it deserves an episode of its own, which unfortunately we probably won't be able to justify, although we will return to it again in a special episode devoted to Plato's accounts of cosmic ascent. For yes, we are going to see that the souls of the dead in Plato's account no longer go down to the traditional underworld necessarily. Some of them go up, ascending through the cosmos into an other world of great strangeness which seems to owe some of its imagery, from what little we know, to Orphic and other mystery initiations, but of course turn to Plato's own creative ends. But this cosmic vision may itself be intended as a paradigm, an image of the reality which the souls see. We're on other world rules now, and topography no longer means what it did in the daylit world. So here's the myth as Socrates narrates it. There was a man named Ur, the son of Arminius, from Pamphylia, and he was killed in battle. Ten days the bodies are lying in the field, and on the tenth day they come to gather them up, but his body was found undecayed, strangely enough. Two days after that, when they were about to burn his body on the funeral pyre, he sprang up alive. He then told what he had seen in the other world. We've seen this theme of a seemingly dead body whose soul goes on a journey and then returns with uh, tales to tell 
in the stories of soul manipulators associated with the Pythagorean tradition. And Plato seems to be riffing on this theme here. Ur tells us that he traveled with many other souls to a place where two passageways opened into the earth and two more in the sky. Here sat some judges who assessed each soul. The unjust souls were sent down through the leftward path into the earth, while the just souls were sent upward and through the right hand opening in the sky. Ur, they gave special instructions to observe what he saw as he was to return to the land of the living and tell mankind what he'd seen in the other world. Ur noticed the other two openings that we haven't discussed yet had souls coming out of them. The left-hand sky passage had radiant souls issuing forth in a stream, while the right-hand passage into the earth was sending out souls looking much the worse for wear. These souls all came out and greeted each other and encamped in a place called the Meadow, a place with Homeric and Orphic resonances in its name, and they caught up on the news the unjust souls telling of the horrors they had experienced on a subterranean journey of a thousand years, while the just souls told of a journey of inconceivable beauty and joy, which also lasted a thousand years. For every unjust action that they had committed in the life on earth, the unjust souls had been punished tenfold, but the just ones had received tenfold rewards for their good actions. Now, when the unjust souls were ascending upwards out of the earth, some particularly nasty pieces of work, the souls of tyrants, in fact, were not allowed to leave. The opening out of the earth let out a horrible bellowing sound and agents of some kind, sort of mysterious divine beings of some kind, we don't know what they are, who were sort of standing guard, grabbed them, flayed them, and dragged them ignominiously to Tartarus. So the impression we're given is that if you do something really, really bad, like be a tyrant, you don't get to get out again and try again. You're simply thrown into an eternal pit of darkness. When the company had been in the meadow for seven days, presumably chatting and catching up on old times, on the eighth day, they had to journey onward. After four days of journeying, they saw a vast shaft of light stretching from the sky down through the earth like a pillar. Ur compares it to a rainbow, but brighter and more pure. So this is a kind of axis mundi that Plato is depicting here, which seems to combine, interestingly, the Norse Yggdrasil and the Bifrost in one convenient package. It's a rainbow world tree. But anyway, they journey on another day, and then they come up to this cosmic axis and see in its center, stretching from heaven, its chains. Now, these chains are very difficult indeed to interpret, but they're somehow related to the ways in which the light binds the revolving heavens together. And we'll get to that now. From the furthest parts of the pillar of light stretched the spindle of necessity, which provides the rotation for all the circles of heaven. The shaft of the spindle and the hook are made of something called adamant, which seems to be a mythical, indestructible material of some kind. And the whorl itself is partly of adamant and partly of other substances. Now the whorl, this is the spinning bit which hangs down from an old-fashioned hand spindle for making yarn. And you can see a picture of this kind of spinning on an ancient Greek vase painting in the page for this episode of the podcast. So check that out if you're not really clear on how yarn was spun back in the day. The whorl is the celestial cosmos, but in cross-section, <laughs> and it gets very weird here. Imagine a tennis ball, then cut the tennis ball in half and then look down into it. We're looking down into the half tennis ball and its flat side, the side where we've cut it, is pointing up. 
okay? And right through the center of the round side, the bottom, passes the thread which attaches it to the spindle of necessity. So the spindle of necessity has this long thread coming down from it, which I think it's safe to say is this column of rainbow light, and probably the chains are somehow involved in this as well. So this is like the, the long thread that's being made coming from the spindle down to the whirl in actual old-fashioned spinning. This tennis ball half is a hemisphere rotating with the flat side pointing up and the round side pointing down. Can you see that? Now, multiply this hemisphere with seven other hemispheres, all nested one inside the other, all with their flat sides where they've been cut pointing up and forming a kind of flat surface, which is divided into eight circles. The souls in Ur's myth seem to be peering down at this from some kind of height, and this is a model or paradigm of the celestial spheres. Seven for the planets, sun and moon, and the outermost for the fixed stars. Ur, or Socrates, or Plato doesn't come out and say as much, but it becomes clear from the descriptions of each hemisphere that we're dealing with in order from the outside, the fixed stars, Venus, Mars, the moon, the sun, Mercury, Jupiter, and Saturn a peculiar ordering, which we may have more to say about in future. Now, the spindle turns on the knees of necessity, Ananke. On the rims of each of the hemispheres, there's perched a siren, singing a single note. Now, the sirens were mythological beings who, who had magic songs. You find them in Homer. All eight sirens produce the harmonies of a single scale. So this is the famous music of the spheres. They're basically just chanting out this cosmic chord. Sitting nearby on thrones are the three fates, Lachesis, Clotho, and Atropos, who are the daughters of necessity in Ur's myth, and they're singing or chanting along with the music of the sirens. Lachesis sings of things past, Clotho sings of the present, and Atropos sings of the future. The fates also occasionally give one or another of the hemispheres a spin, which seems to be a way of accounting in the myth for the different perceived speeds of motion in the heavenly bodies, something we've seen Plato do in a different way with the circles of the same and different in the Timaeus myth. So all the souls arrive here, and they're required to go before Lachesis. An interpreter steps up and tells them Lachesis's read. Now the souls will begin another round of incarnation, to end once again in death and the souls will choose their own next life themselves. They're given lots at random to determine the order of choosing, but they choose freely within those constraints. Plato here makes a very strong and very influential argument for a life where a certain necessary element beyond our control is present, but it's dealt with through our own free will. We are free and heaven is blameless. So the interpreter lays out before them all manner of sample lives. Be a tyrant, be an unknown woman, be rich, be poor, be a dog, be a cat, be a plant, whatever. The first in line immediately seized a rather thrasymachan choice, that of absolute despot. But in his greed, he didn't read the fine print. In this life, he was fated to eat his own children. When he noticed this, he freaked out, but it was too late. Then Ur tells of the souls of many famous characters from Greek mythology who are there and getting ready to reincarnate. So the soul of Orpheus chooses the life of a swan. He'd had such a bad time being ripped 
to little pieces by the maenads that he wants no part of humanity this time around. He wants to be a swan instead. He sees the soul of Ayas, the son of Telamon, who's a hero from Homer's Iliad, who had committed suicide out of wounded pride, basically. Um, he chooses the life of a lion. Again, he doesn't want to be human. We see a number of other well-known characters from Greek legends choosing various lives in accordance with what they'd gone through in their previous existence. Last of all comes Odysseus himself, the Homeric hero most known for his cunning wiliness. He looks a long time for the most obscure and unremarkable life he can get, remembering all the hard work he had to put in as a Homeric king and warrior and hero. We're nearing the very, very end of Plato's dialogue here, and I love how Plato gives us, as a parting shot, a bunch of Homeric heroes having just spent so much time condemning Homer and casting him out of the virtuous state. The souls are then assigned a guardian daimon, which is going to accompany them through their life. And they pass one by one by each of the fates, and then beneath the throne of necessity, and they all journey together to the plain of Liti, where runs the river of forgetfulness, which we met in our discussions of Orphism, although there it was a spring of forgetfulness. This plain is a horrible, stifling place, and it's all dusty and really unpleasant. And the souls have to encamp there by the river Ameles, unmindfulness, and drink some of the river's water, which causes them to forget everything. Plato's playing with themes familiar from Orphism should be clear here. Then they fall asleep, and at midnight there's thunder and an earthquake, and the souls rocket off to their new incarnations. Ur, of course, they keep away from the water so that he can recall what he's seen. Then he suddenly opens his eyes and finds himself in his body on the funeral pyre. And that is the end of the Republic of Plato. What mysteries and wonders have we passed over along the way? Join us next time as we take a closer look at the juiciest bits of Plato's dialogue. But for now, let us remember the first word of the Republic, I went down. Now right at the end we have gone up again in the company of Ur. The chiasmus is complete. Stay esoteric. <laughs>